So before Advent and Christmas, we started a series called Discovering God's Will Together. And we noted that the first step in doing that is to be able to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, on God and on God alone. And we said that discerning the will of God is not just something we do for the big decisions in life, but is in fact learning to listen to God's word and learning to hear God in prayer about all the things of what life is really all about. We said that this is non-negotiable for those who would follow Jesus Christ. And since spiritual discipline is always a, a corporate, a community endeavor, we need to learn to do this together. So we're picking that series up this morning. We have a few verses that I'd like to invite you to uh, listen to and share along with me. They're taken from the first gospel, the gospel according to St. Matthew. They're found in the 13th verse and just a couple of verses, verses 44, 45, and 46. And there Jesus is speaking and he says, the kingdom of God is like this. Treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went out and sold all that he had and he bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything that he had and bought it. In Arthurian legend, people devoted their lives to the quest for the Holy Grail. They gratefully purified their hearts. They sacrificed their bodies. They renounced all that they had in order to just have a glimpse of what for them was the ultimate symbol of their union with Christ. The cup and the plate that Christ used in the Last Supper. It was thought to be the culmination of their pursuit of intimacy with God. The pursuit of their life in the kingdom. The kingdom for which Camelot was just a dark shadow. It was this single-minded pursuit that demanded the preparation of one's whole spirit. A quest that could only be completed by someone who was humble and true and pure in heart. And no true knight ever questioned whether it would be worth the cost. This was the quest beyond and beside which every other quest that could be imagined was set aside. Conquering heroes, accumulating wealth, building great kingdoms, not near as important. The Holy Grail was for them the pearl of great price for which any and every rational human being would joyfully give up everything. Today, the quest of most people is quite different. Today, the primary quest is for a balanced life or a balanced lifestyle. In our busy, fast-paced, success-driven lives, people strive for this kind of balance. And so we use time management consultants and life coaches. We carry day planners and calendars on our computer. 
We have lifestyle apps on our iPhones and our galaxies. And no doubt, we, or people we know, have made New Year's resolutions to add a little bit of margin to our life, to get physically fit or to lower our stress levels. The balanced life can be pictured or seen as a pie chart with seven or eight different slices. Family, finances, the intellect, physical, recreation, our relationships, our vocation, and then maybe a slice designated as spiritual. This paradigm, we are told, is designed to make our lives far more manageable, more convenient, more pleasant, more meaningful. If they say you have balance, you have it all. This is the quest, and on the surface, it seems to be a rather enviable goal and somewhat plausible. But if we pause, I think we would discover it's not without its significant concerns. For example, each area seems to carry exactly the same weight. They're all the same size. And the paradigm encourages us to think about finances over here and family over here and work over here. And all of them as non-spiritual activities, while defining spirituality as its own separate entity, a box, a triangle, if you will, all its own. This paradigm provides little encouragement to those who are in crisis. I mean, how does it help a person with terminal disease or a person out on the street and homeless or a single mother with a physically challenged child to be able to tell them, you know, if you had a more balanced life, it would be good. This paradigm also seems to provide little sense of urgency that is worthy of our human devotion. I mean, it focuses me on me. But maybe that's the goal. On me rather than, than on something larger than me, something worthy of my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength. George Bernard Shaw wrote, the true joy of life is being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one, being thoroughly worn out before you are thrown on the scrap heap, being a force of nature instead of a selfish little clod of ailments and grievances, complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. Go, George. This paradigm lacks any call or invitation to sacrifice or self-denial or surrender or the wild, risky, costly, adventurous, sacrificial abandonment that is required to follow Jesus with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. The poor in Haiti, the starving in Sudan, the refugees of Ukraine, the families decimated by civilian-targeted bombing, those who grieve the deaths that have resulted from road rage or campus murders or blizzards are longing for more. More than just word that a balanced life would give them assistance. You and I are longing for more. And I 
No, God certainly expects more from us. The ultimate quest of life is not for more balance. Don't waste your time. The ultimate quest is for a fully devoted heart. A heart that is committed to one and only one thing. To deep intimacy with God. To knowing and discerning his will and his wisdom. And to reflecting God's love back to him and to one another. Jesus said it like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor like you love yourself. You see, this balance paradigm makes the false assumption that the issues you and I face are primarily external. That is, they are always problems with our schedule. They are problems with our job or our boss or our finances. They're a problem with our teacher or our spouse or with the system itself. That is, it's always somebody else's fault. A fully devoted heart recognizes that the real messes, the real disorder in this world, the real problems are internal. They're primarily heart problems. They're our heart problems. St. Augustine suggests that a fully devoted heart is, and I quote, to love the right thing, to love to the right degree, to love in the right way, to love with the right kind of love. If our heart is fully devoted to Jesus we will not only find ourselves increasingly free from sin, we will find ourselves increasingly free from the desire to sin. If our heart is fully devoted, you and I will love people enough that we can set any intention or inclination we might have to deceive or manipulate or criticize or malign them for our own personal gain. So the question on the table this morning is, how is a distorted, sinful heart transformed into a fully devoted heart? And the answer is, over a lifetime. It's a journey of significant, lifelong perseverance. It's hard work. It carries a substantial risk. It isn't every day, all day, all the rest of our life kind of a thing. Which is why so many people say, eh, not interested, and avoid it. The answer is, by rearranging our lives around our deepest desire and need. That is, around the very reason God created us in the first place. Most people just try to shove their spiritual life into the crooks and the crannies and the closets of their life, a life that is already out of control and unmanageable. By contrast, Jesus pictures a person striving and searching for something that is significant and of lasting value, a very expensive pearl of great price, if you will, that represents for us the kingdom of God. And when they find it, they have the wisdom to be able to understand that that's it. 
and you can sell and get rid of anything and everything else you have as long as you have that one thing that they most deeply long for. So how many people do you know that have arranged their entire life just to seek God? Now, you may have heard of some, but the chances are you know very, very few people like that. And yet, that's what God is calling each and every one of us to be. The answer is also by making a fully devoted heart the ultimate quest of our life. Do you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength? We want to say yes. But do we really? Do we really want more of Jesus and his kingdom? Do we really? Are we willing to pay the price that that would require? Are we willing to sacrifice the necessary time and energy that's necessary? Are we willing to sell and surrender everything that we have to attain it? Or is our yes just a lot of talk? No one who has ever made a fully devoted heart their life's quest has ever regretted that decision. So the human journey, life, particularly the spiritual journey side of that life is profoundly shaped by our deepest desires, by our heart's desires. The truth is, we usually get what we desire. What we really, really want, we strive for. We actively pursue it. And as a result, we often attain it. And that desire shapes our lives. What is it that you want most of all? What is your pearl? Think carefully. Be honest. Because the only one you're deceiving by being dishonest is yourself. Is it wealth? Pleasure. Recognition. Influence. Power. Sex. Do you need a hint? What do you spend most of your time doing? What do you spend most of your time thinking about? Where do you spend your discretionary money? Clues. Thomas Merton writes, life is shaped by the end you live for. You are made in the image of what you desire most. You see, the truth is, we need to take the time to peel back the layers. And when we do that, we discover that, that our deepest desires are all ultimately spiritual. Our desires form and they direct our soul and they direct our spirit. And it's imperative that our desires are solidly grounded in our relationship with God. 
Christian spirituality has on many occasions been defined as the crucifixion of desire. Some say that desires are innately and always sinful, and therefore they just ought to be squashed. But the truth is that our deepest desires are God-given. They are God-focused, and it's our sin that has distorted them in our life. And so the process of spiritual transformation is the process of recovering and redeeming and restoring our deepest desires. The desires that God himself has placed in our heart and in our soul to be our life's quest. Christian spirituality is about discovering that our desire is for nothing more than God and being willing to settle for nothing less. Our hunger for God cannot go unanswered because it's a gift from God. The truth is, no one who seeks God fails to find God because God has already found us. We may be tempted to, to think that our desiring God originates with us, but it doesn't. Our desiring God originates in God desiring us. We might not even know what it is we actually long for, but our deepest longings are all God-given, and they are all designed to bring us back into that relationship, into that intimacy with God. Now, this may sound a bit strange. Maybe on the surface, it even sounds a little bit too good to be true, because you see, we have our doubts, because we have stepped into the deception of this world we have been taught, I think, that pursuing our desires is little more than a self-centered ego trip, that it's all about us and therefore it should be avoided. We have been taught, many of us believe, that we'll never get the things we really want anyway. That is, there is no Santa Claus for adults. So why waste our time talking about or thinking about our deepest desires we assume God's desires for us and our desires for ourselves are worlds apart on the opposite ends of the same continuum and they'll never mesh and they'll never overlap anyway, so why bother? We believe our desires have been tarnished by sin and that's true. But we also believe they're unredeemable. They're a waste of time and that's not true. We are consumed by superficial desires. Oh, if we could just win the lottery, over a billion dollars. Just have that new car, life would be good. If I could have that bigger house. And we confuse those superficial desires with our deepest desire for intimacy, for purpose, for destiny, to belong love. Ironically, the best way to get to know our deepest desire is to start with those surface and those superficial desires and then begin to peel and begin to dig. David Benner tells the story of Kala. He writes, Kala thought her deepest desire was to be married and to have children. 
but without a man in her life and the ticking of her biological clock, she felt those kinds of dreams just slipping through her fingers. She was bitter and miserable and puzzled when asked about her deepest longings because she felt she had already shared those and said. But upon further exploration, she began to see deeper. She realized she longed to be needed and loved. She longed to feel connected to others. Marriage and mothering held the hope of meeting those basic needs for her. But her deepest desire was not for a man or a baby, but for love and significance. The longing for love and significance pointed Kala to God. Her longing came from a God-shaped empty space in her heart that God had put there just for that purpose. Jesus reminds us that where our deepest desire is, where our deepest treasure is, there our heart will be also. And until Kala saw the ultimate nature of her desires, she remained idolatry, idolatrously locked into marriage and motherhood as the only source of any hope or any satisfaction or any fulfillment in her life. These core needs that we have been mentioning, love and significance, safety and security, identity and intimacy, truth and life, satisfaction and fulfillment, all of those are God-given. They're all designed to lead us to him, into fellowship and into intimacy. They're all designed to be fulfilled by God and by Christ alone. You see, our deepest longings are always spiritual. They're always designed to lead us into greater intimacy with Jesus Christ. Sadly, our responses to those longings are not always life-giving. Sadly, many people tend to respond to them very inappropriately. So sin has distorted and disordered our desires. We've tweaked our deepest desires to include the treasures of a good positive self-image and lots of possessions and influence and accomplishments. Instead of now reliably leading us to God, we have allowed our deepest desires to lead us to frustration and to despair. Nothing in this world can satisfy any of those longings, any of our deepest desires. Only God. And so that space in our heart is designed to lead us to him. He's the only one who can satisfy. So why? Why should we talk about a disordered heart and distorted desires? Why not just simply call it what it is, call it sin? Good question. Let's be clear. It is sin. Anything that springs from a self-attempt to live our life without full surrender to God is sin. And it's usually helpful to call sin, sin, even though People don't like to do that. David Benner writes, every idolatrous desire, that is, everything that we love and desire more than God, 
tends ultimately to diminish our humanity and damage our soul. Everything. But sometimes it can also be helpful to think of it as a distorted heart or a distorted desire because it reminds us that it is God-given. It was something that was designed to bring us into intimacy with God that you and I, people, messed up. So we have taken something that was designed to bring us into greater intimacy, to unite our heart with God's heart, and we have used it to keep God at a distance. We have taken something that was a God-given gift and distorted it for our own personal gain. Let me give you a few examples. God gave us fellow human beings a community so we could experience community and enjoy community like God himself enjoys community. But instead, we have used community to satisfy our own selfish desires. So in our world, we have a major sex trade. We have slaves. We have myriads of abuse victims. We have people forcing soldiers to give their lives in order to pad leaders' own ego. God gave us gifts and resources to enjoy, and we respond by wasting, abusing, and hoarding them. People don't recycle. They just trash it. We waste energy. We refuse to share. God offers his unconditional love to us to provide us safety and security, but we prefer to build our own safety nets. So... We have bombs in this world enough to destroy the world hundreds of times over and over. People need their personal assault rifles. We have vast security systems. People hire personal bodyguards. God offers a mission that he says will lead us into joy. We prefer to arrange our own happiness and our own fulfillment so we engage in pornography and materialism and hedonism and lots of isms. The gifts of God are good. Our disordered heart has just distorted them. They need to be redeemed. They need to be restored. So what can we do to correct these distortions of our God-given desires? And here's the answer. We can't do anything. We can't do anything to purify our own desires. We need grace. The grace that is necessary to reorient our life is a gift from God. The spiritual journey, you see, is not a self-improvement project. We don't Need to get better so that God will love us a little bit more. Don't fall into that trap. There is an invitation to willingly surrender, which you and I know is a very unpopular word today, but to surrender our whole self to God along with our distorted heart and allow God to step in through his spirit and transform our distortions. No true believer who has ever done that has ever regretted the cost. The answer is, we can pray. We can ask God to reorient our life. 
We can, we must pray on a daily basis. We need to pray that prayer on a daily basis. And it may sound over, overly simplistic and maybe even overly pious, but it is absolutely true. Prayer sorts out our desires. Now you'll notice, I did not say that in prayer we sort out our desires because we don't. Even the sorting work is the work of God, not ours. But by spending time with God in his presence consciously, that makes all the difference. God invites us to come on multiple occasions just to sit in his presence, to allow him to purify our desires and realign our hearts. And if that doesn't sound practical enough to you, you have not spent enough time simply sitting in silence in the presence of God. Because if you do, he will turn his searchlight on. Silence in the presence of God, that is the essence of prayer, deepens our awareness of both ourselves and of God, of our desires and of his. The psalmist invites us to pray Examine me and know my heart. Probe me. Know my thoughts. You see, this is, this is not a request that God would give us some time and pay attention and get to know us a little bit better. No, God knows us better already than we know ourselves. This is an invitation by the psalmist that God will come in and show us what God knows about us so that we might see it as well. And that happens in prayer. You see, the closer we get to God in prayer, the more we will understand the God desires God has put in our life. Prayer, Spurgeon says, is the furnace where the metal is separated from the dross, where our self-serving desires get burned off, revealing who we are, really. It's the place where we discover our deepest desires are nothing other than for God and for God alone. And where God's pure desires become our deep desires and our life gets put in order. God longs to give us our heart's deepest desire. But we need to ask for it. We need to seek it. We need to make it our life's quest. Ask, Jesus said, and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you will find. If you knock, the door will be opened. Are you banging at the door? A couple of verses later, Jesus said, if you who are evil know how to give your children what is good, how much more your Father in heaven will give you good things if you ask. So the answer is, the only thing that you and I can do is to reorder our life so Jesus can come in and do what only Jesus and God can do. That is the process of arranging our lives so that we might attain the pearl of great price begins with attending to our deepest desires, allowing God's heart to become our heart 
when we long for nothing more than God, then our deepest longings will point us toward a deeper and greater intimacy. When we desire nothing less than God, then we can be spiritually transformed and experience the freedom of enjoying the fullness of life that he designed for us to have. So let me leave you with two simple questions this morning as we prepare to go to the Lord's table. First, what is your deepest desire? After you've peeled all the layers back and get to the very essence of it, what is it you really want and long for with all of your life and heart? And second, are you willing to rearrange your life for what your heart most deeply desires and desperately needs. And starting next Sunday morning, we're going to talk about how we can do that together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being the desire of our heart, for being worth the desire of our life for being one who calls us to more than just us to something transforming to something beyond us to something worth the quest of our life thank you for being a great great God and we pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. amen.